Dr. Megan Rainey is our guest. Um, Dr. Megan is somebody who, well, two years ago, she wrote an article in The Times about treating gun violence as a public health crisis. She's a practicing emergency physician, researcher, and advocate for innovative approaches to health. Her work focuses on the intersection between digital health, violence prevention, and population health. Um, She is the deputy dean uh, of the School of Public Health at Brown University. Uh, Doctor, good to have you on News and Views. It's a joy to join you today, Joel. I want to talk to you about gun violence. I mean, that's really what everybody is or or should be talking about, how we can prevent gun violence, what's going on. I mean, it's so complex. There isn't just one answer. I I get that. But when you look at this and and you see more, and, and we just saw more at Mardi Gras. I mean, we just saw it all over again to the point where we're all so numb. We don't even pay attention to it anymore. I just got to ask you, what the heck is going on out there? It is mind-boggling that we're here, you know, more than a decade after Sandy Hook, um, that we keep seeing the numbers go up. Uh, As you say, there's not a week that goes by where there's not some sort of a public mass shooting. And that's ignoring all of the stuff that we don't ever hear about, all of the gun suicides um, and domestic violence and the accidental shootings that are, thank goodness, less common, but happen almost every day across the country. Um, It it is uh, frustrating and can feel hopeless. Um, And and I'll be honest, Joel, I think part of the problem is that we have turned this into a political punching bag rather than focusing on the underlying issue, which is nobody wants themselves or their family members to be shot. And we've turned this into an us versus them debate instead of taking that human health, human safety aspect and prioritizing that. If we can start from thinking about how to keep people from pulling the trigger against themselves or someone else, same way that we think about how to prevent a car crash, um, it just changes the frame and, and gives us a way to actually make some forward progress. Well, I, I'm a gun owner, which doesn't surprise you, living where I live and, and doing what I do. But, you know, to me, the one thing that's lost in all of this discussion, this debate, is first off, I think gun owners would, reasonable gun owners would sit at a table and say, okay, what can we talk about? What can we agree on? Instead of this whole notion of nothing. Just don't even talk to us. Nothing. We're not even willing to talk to you. I mean, how we get past that to the point where reasonable gun owners like myself say, all right, let's sit down. Let's talk. Uh, I mean, let's find a way to solve this because I think there's more of me than there is of the whole Second Amendment, my constitutional right over my, you know, my cold, dead. I mean, that attitude, I think there's more of me than those. I agree completely. And, you know, I know you and I have talked before, uh, for those who have not heard us, that is the core of all of my work around gun violence as a health or public health problem. Listen, 40% of Americans, of American adults, own a firearm. I grew up in western New York. Um, I have family that are military, former Secret Service, police officers, hunters. Um, This is part of the culture of America. And when I talk to any of my family members or friends, I will say with You know, full disclosure, I am not a firearm owner myself, but I've certainly been to the range multiple times. When I talk to anyone, everyone agrees, right? 
If you are a firearm owner, you know that you have certain responsibilities associated with that. You need to know how to handle your firearm appropriately. You need to know how to clean it. You need to know where it is. You have a responsibility to make sure that folks that aren't authorized don't get their hands on it. And you have a responsibility to be able to recognize those signs of risk in your friends and family members, signs of risk for suicide, which is the most common form of gun death in this country. And if you have kids, things that might put them at risk. And we've unfortunately created this political discussion where you can't talk about trying to reduce gun death without it turning into something where people think that we're trying to take all the guns away. On the other hand, we can't talk about uh, appropriately recognizing risk and talking about safety without someone on the other side saying, oh, well, we just need to arm everyone, right? So it's turned into these two extremes as opposed to talking about those central precepts, which any responsible gun owner will be on board with, which is the idea that there are some responsibilities that you have and there are ways to keep people safe. And, hey, there might be some people who shouldn't get their hands on a gun uh, because they are not safe to themselves or to those around them. And we need to keep our communities safe by making sure that those people don't have access to a firearm in a moment of crisis or hatred or impulsivity. Well, Dr. Ranny, let me assure you on this. Uh, I've hunted all my life. And the the day of deer season, the day of elk season, the day of whatever season, you don't go, holy cow, I forgot to buy a gun. And you rush to the store to get yourself a gun. Because if you do, you ain't worth a damn spit anyway, as far as a hunter goes. I mean, th- this whole notion that you walk into the sportsman, you know, into the store and say, all right, uh, you know, I need an 870. Give me one of those. And then you leave with it without having some semblance of a background check, without having some uh, more thorough check is just beyond me. But you mentioned something in, in what you just said that, that, I had thought of before this interview, which is we we talk about gun violence in comparison to other nations, and we have a lot to be embarrassed about. But what about suicide rates? Because the the people that are doing these shootings, they don't care if they live. They they don't. This is their way of dying. So what's going on there in comparison to other countries? Or better way of asking this, Dr. Randy, What's going on there, period? So we know that the states with actually the highest gun death rates in the country, it's largely because of gun suicide. Um, New Mexico, Montana, Wyoming, um, Missouri, uh, gun suicide is a huge part of it, unfortunately. And uh, there are very few of us that live in communities where firearm ownership is common who don't know someone. Um, who has taken their own life uh, with a gun. We in the United States have a unique epidemic of both suicide and mental health problems, and having easy access to a firearm in that moment of depression and impulsivity increases the chances that someone will die. If I can take care of someone as an emergency physician who is thinking about suicide or even who has tried to hurt themselves, If they can make it alive to my doors, I can almost always get them better. And almost always, they will not go on to try again. It's a momentary crisis. Unfortunately, if that person has access to a firearm at that moment of crisis, the chance of helping them, the chance of helping them live, the chance of helping them have a normal life often goes away. Um, and, And so that's a huge part of the discussion that we forget about when we focus 
only on uh, mass shootings or or homicides. But 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 you mentioned epidemic. It, it, it still goes back to the to my core mess or question, which is why 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 do people want to kill themselves more than when I was growing up? Or you know what what is it that that makes them completely disregard the life that they have now or versus before? It's a complex set of circumstances, Joel. It's a combination of hopelessness, whether it's economic hopelessness, so many folks that are out of a job or kind of staring down um, bills that they feel that they can't pay. It's hopelessness because of loneliness. Um, you know, you think back to 30 years ago, you know, we all went to community get-togethers. We had church or we had Girl Scouts or Rotary Club or now people sit at home and sit on the computer instead. Social media certainly plays a part of it. And then there's just this larger um, you know, breakdown of society and, and looking out for each other. Uh, there are people that will point to things that, oh, it's COVID or it's um, uh, climate change. And certainly all of that plays into it. Um, but at the core, it's about us not being connected and people feeling like they don't have any other alternative. Uh, doctor, how big of a factor is competition? And I, some of the people that I've seen that are the most unhappy in this world are individuals that that think of themselves as failures in life, that they don't see life to me for what – I mean, I'm never going to have as much money as many of my friends. If, if that's how I deem success in life, then I'm a failure. But I don't deem success in life that way. Uh, I'm never going to have as many toys and houses and cars and all of those things as many of my friends. But I don't deem that to be success. Uh, you know, whether it be that spouse, whether it be, I mean, how big of a factor is the pure nature of competition in 2023 versus what it was in in 1961 when i was born so i think we live in a more individualistic society now than we lived in in the 60s or the 70s where it's thought of as every person out for themselves it's not about as much about taking care of the community um and that's certainly part of it we also live in a society where it's tougher to make ends meet where medical bankruptcy is incredibly common um if you go back 15 years, folks were losing their houses because of the mortgage crisis. Um, and I think that that's as much of a part of it as anything. I will also say that social media, for those folks that are kind of doing the horrific mass shootings, people have the ability to access communities of hatred now that they couldn't uh, 40 or 50 years ago. And it's something that we have to grapple with. You know, we want to preserve free speech for sure. Um, but you know, if you have someone who's going off the deep end, it's far too easy for them to find other people that will validate that way of thinking online. Well, I mean, this is what you do. You're a practicing emergency physician. You're a researcher. Yeah. You advocate for innovative approaches to health. I mean, that's what you do. So forget the laws. For, forget this whole, boy, you'll never take my gun away. Just I'm going to turn you into the 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 czar the 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 god of this fix it if if you could <laughs> fix it without worrying about going to court or whatever with, with the intelligence that the good lord gave you dr randy wh what would you do 
Well, so the first thing is honestly sitting down with firearm owners, with leaders and in, in the community and working to change the conversation around recognizing risk. So safe storage is one of the biggest things that we can do, having everyone make sure that their firearms are not accessible to kids, to burglars, to people who are um, stressed or impulsive. Don't put your gun in the car without making sure it's locked up. Car thefts of guns are going through the roof. It's a major way that illegal guns get on the street. Kids shoot themselves with their parents' guns. School shootings happen with their parents' guns. So safe storage would be the first thing. The second thing is around changing that way, as you alluded to, around the way that folks access guns. There are absolutely people out there who should not be able to walk in and purchase a firearm, people who have a history of violence, particularly domestic violence, people who have a history of substance use. And, and we should have a way to make sure that those folks don't get guns that can then put those around them at risk. And then the third thing is around enabling all of us to feel that we can do something if we see that someone near us is at risk of suicide, of domestic violence, or God forbid, of a mass shooting, that we have tools that we can use, knowing that there are around 400 million firearms in private hands across the United States, Joel. We cannot wave a magic wand and pretend that they're not there. So, so we've got to have ways um, to intervene when there is risk. Um, we have that for heart attacks. We have that for car crashes. How many times have you said to a friend, listen, I'm going to take your keys away because you've had one too many to drink, and I'm going to drive you home tonight? We need to have those same strategies in place um, for firearms as well to reduce that, that risk. Yeah, I think that the the excuse that people give uh, for instant access to firearms are some of the most ridiculous excuses that people could probably give. And I think responsible gun owners, if they were truly in fear uh, of losing uh, their right to gun ownership, would realize they've got to be part of the problem. They, they just have, or it's part of the solution, yeah. I mean. They've got to be, or else someday they're going to wake up, and some of the things that they hold so dear, they're not going to have and, and so well, sitting so down at a table and, and working is the key. Doctor? I, I will uh, welcome anyone to reach out to me anytime because I, I agree with you that that is the key, and I am here for it. I already work with a number of or, both individuals and organizations across the country and would welcome anyone that's interested in being part of the solution to reach out. You're good people, doctor. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Take care.